Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Last week, Robinhood Markets, the brokerage app that everyone loves to hate, announced that they are beginning the rollout of IPO Access, a new product that they say will give their customers the opportunity to buy shares of companies at the IPO price before they trade on public exchanges. With IPO Access, Robinhood claims that retail investors can now participate in upcoming IPOs with no account minimums. Today, most IPO shares go to institutions or high net worth investors at the offer price. Smaller institutions and retail investors have to wait till the shares are trading on the exchange, where they often end up buying them at a premium to the IPO price. Let's use the recent Airbnb IPO as an example. If you got an allocation, you would have bought Airbnb at $68 per share. The first trade on the exchange was at $146 per share. That's a 115% premium above the IPO price. The stock closed that day at $145. Although the news touted a 113% gain, investors who bought at the opening price were actually down by the close of business. At the time of this recording, Airbnb is trading at $143. Robinhood are saying that they will allow everyday investors the chance to get in at the IPO price, so at the $68 level in that example, rather than the $145 price. It's worth noting, though, that Robinhood will not be an underwriter for companies going public. They'll instead try to get an allocation of shares from the investment banks and then pass those on to their customers. The traditional IPO process has been criticised for a long time as being broken, with investment banks allocating the shares to big clients who capture the instant first-day gains. Some people claim that SPACs are a means to avoid that problem. But if you've watched my prior videos on SPACs, which I'll link to at the end of this video, you'll have seen that the public typically does worse with SPACs, and the real winner in that deal is the SPAC sponsor. Primary direct listings are a new means of going public on the New York Stock Exchange, and that approach has combated some of the criticisms of SPACs and the IPO process. Let's quickly look at the data of how IPOs typically perform, some of the theories as to why they behave the way they do, and at the end we'll discuss whether this move by Robinhood is good for retail investors or not. When trying to understand the IPO market, we're very lucky as there are academics who've devoted their entire careers to studying IPOs and IPO underpricing. The IPO pop is not just annoying to retail investors who don't get an allocation. It also enrages the companies who sell stock at one price and see it trading hours later at a much higher price. In cases where a stock pops a lot, it's seen as a missed opportunity on the part of the issuing company, who feel they sold their company much too cheap. 
Google famously decided to go public in 2004 using a Dutch auction process to avoid leaving money on the table. This was quite a big deal at the time, but it didn't end up working out for them. The IPO was priced at $85 through the Dutch auction and then opened at $100, delivering an immediate pop of 17% to investors who had gotten an allocation. This was roughly in line with what would have been expected in a traditional IPO. Studies have found that IPO underpricing is ubiquitous and the average IPO pops around 18% on the first day of trading. The frothier the stock market, the more the shares seem to pop. In 1999, IPOs averaged a 60% increase on the first trading day. In 2020, we saw an average first day return for newly listed IPOs, excluding SPACs, of 38%. When we analyze the last 10 years of data, we find that average IPO pops were greater if the market had rallied in the three weeks prior to the IPO than if it went public in a flat or down market. The data shows that first day returns for tech companies tend to be higher than for non-tech IPOs. Over the last 40 years, tech IPOs popped 31% versus 11% for all other sectors. People like to point out that many tech companies are unprofitable when they go public. Interestingly, IPOs of companies without earnings have experienced an average first day return higher than for those with positive earnings. This investor optimism might reflect the stronger growth prospects for new high growth technology companies. It's worth noting that many of the largest companies in the world today were once one of those tech companies that went public with negative earnings. IPO underpricing is not just an American issue. It appears to be a worldwide phenomenon. In China, IPO underpricing has been extreme, averaging 137% from 1990 through to 2010. This compares with 16% in the United Kingdom. In most other countries, IPO underpricing averages around 20%. Okay, so to understand this underpricing, let's first look at how the traditional IPO process works. The process usually involves a company raising additional capital from institutional investors the day before the stock's new ticker starts trading on an exchange. Typically, a group of investment banks will run a process known as book building, where they reach out to their biggest clients and assemble a book of orders at different prices that institutional investors are willing to pay for the IPO. These investors are shown a list of possible prices and asked to submit how many shares they're willing to take at the different price points. Generally being involved in this process is by invitation only to big clients of the investment banks. Generally, securities laws require additional disclosure requirements if the issue is to be offered to retail investors. This requirement is the main reason why retail investors are usually not involved at this stage. The way that book building works is that the investment bank invites large investors and fund managers to submit bids on the number of shares that they're interested in buying and the prices that they would be willing to pay. They bid the number of shares that they're willing to buy at the various price levels. 
To price the issue, the underwriter uses the weighted average method to arrive at the final price for the shares. Stock exchanges around the world usually require that the banks make the details of the bids public after the IPO in the interests of transparency. Regulators, in addition, are often entitled to verify the bid applications if they feel it's necessary. The price where the underwriters feel that demand adequately covers the issuer's supply is known as the offer price. The idea is that this is the price at which all of the shares will be taken up. All investors are allocated stock in the IPO at that price. Even if they said that they were willing to pay more for the shares, they still get filled at this price. With a really hot IPO, investors often only receive a fraction of the shares that they put in for. The day after the shares have been placed, the listing exchange opens the stock for trading and the shares can now be purchased by the general public. The first opening auction runs like all other exchange opening auctions, reaching a price where demand and supply are equal. That auction forms the stock's first opening price. There can be some complexity to how these deals work, where the underwriter might agree to stabilize or support the price of the offering for the initial trading period with a green shoe or over allotment option. If demand remains strong for the IPO, the opening trading price will be higher than the offer price. But that's not always the case. An average gain of 18% on one day makes IPO investing sound like a very attractive opportunity. However, 31% of IPOs actually fall on their first day of trading rather than popping. Additionally, nearly half of IPOs fall on their second day of trading versus their first day close. Some of the high returns relate to the volatility that investors face. Investors often get only a partial fill on the deals that go well and get a full allocation on the ones that fail. Thus, they don't usually achieve that 18% average return. So what are the theories for why IPOs are so frequently underpriced? The most common explanation and the one with the most empirical support is that IPO underpricing occurs because of informational asymmetry. This theory was put forth by Kevin Rock in 1986. He theorized that uninformed investors bid without regard to the quality of the IPO. They just want access to any IPO. Informed investors, on the other hand, bid only on the offerings that they think will provide superior returns. In an IPO that's overpriced, only uninformed investors will bid and they will then lose money. If they get burned a few times like this, they eventually leave the IPO market for good. The investment banks don't want this to happen as they need the uninformed investors to also be involved as there just aren't enough informed investors to take all IPO shares. To solve this problem, the underwriter prices the IPO to attract these investors, making sure that uninformed investors are also involved in the process. The consequence of this is a general underpricing of IPO shares. Another theory as to why underpricing persists is the investment bank conflict theory, which argues that investment banks arrange for underpricing as a way to benefit themselves and their big clients. There's some mixed evidence to support this argument, 
But this incentive is mostly offset by the fact that if an investment bank is known for underpricing IPOs, companies won't come to them and hire them for future IPOs, and IPOs are very lucrative business for investment banks. In addition, investment bankers' fees and thus their bonuses are based on the size of the deal. So overall, they're well incentivized to raise as much money for their customers as possible. Next up is the managerial conflict theory, which argues that company management deliberately caused the underpricing. The idea being that management creates excessive demand for IPO shares in order to ensure that they can sell their holdings after the legally required 180-day lockup period for a higher price. There's not much evidence to support that theory. Another theory is that the underpricing is caused by American securities laws that impose strict liability on the issuer and on the underwriter for material misstatements and omissions made in connection with the IPO. According to this theory, the underwriter deliberately underprices the IPO to ensure that even if there is a misstatement or omission, the IPO investors don't have a claim since these failures were priced in the IPO. This theory hasn't found much support either, as we see underpricing in other countries with lax securities regulation. Last up, we have liquidity theories that make a lot of sense to me. When a company goes public, let's say that they sell a million shares for $100 a share. A lot of the big institutions who get an allocation will just hold those shares for the long term. Maybe only 10% or 100,000 of those shares get sold by these big investors. And that 100,000 shares are actively bought and sold repeatedly in the first few days of trading. If the shares end the day up 20%, we'll say, at $120, it doesn't mean that the entire million shares could have been placed 20% higher by the investment bank, raising 20% more capital for the company. It might actually mean that you could only have placed the entire million shares at the weighted average of those prices, which is $102, 2% higher than the IPO price. So where does this leave us with Robinhood and IPO access? Well, buying IPO shares is a bit of a lottery for two reasons. One, the company that you're investing in is new and untested. And two, you don't know how many shares you'll get. Robinhood says that their customers will get an equal shot at shares regardless of their order size or account value. One of the problems with getting involved here is that you're faced with what's known as the winner's curse. If you're allocated a lot of shares, that means that there was not much demand and you probably don't want them. Robinhood won't be an underwriter for the companies going public, but will instead apply for shares as an institutional investor and will fight to get an allocation of shares from the investment banks. They'll then pass these shares on to their customers. This is great marketing for Robinhood, and it ties in nicely with their claim to be democratizing finance. I imagine that pretty much every retail brokerage would like to be able to allocate hot IPO shares to their customers too. Robinhood brought down the cost of trading for all retail investors simply because the other brokers had to compete with them on price. It's quite possible that this could change the way that investors get access to IPOs going forward. Whether you like them or not, 
Robinhood have been an innovative brokerage firm. They gamified investing on their app, which is probably not good for their customers. They brought about commission-free trading, but of course accept payment for order flow at a higher rate than many of their competitors. But often outside firms do change the way industries operate. Traditional brokers would happily stick with the way business has always been done, but they must change in order to compete with new entrants. It's probably good for retail investors that brokers are competing for their business. To a certain extent, Robinhood can pitch to the investment banks that their customers will buy stock in every IPO with no price sensitivity, allowing the bankers to price and size the deal more aggressively than if it was just allocated to more sophisticated investors. The companies going public will most likely be happy to hear this, as they might raise more capital through allocating to Robinhood than to large institutions. Companies would probably prefer to have a diverse shareholder base of Robinhood investors rather than a few big investors who might agitate for change if they disagree with how the company is being managed. If the investment banks don't give an allocation to Robinhood, retail investors will simply buy the stock the day after the IPO as they've always done. And if the price pops too much, the issuers will be angry at the banks for leaving money on the table. That doesn't really work for the banks. It's worth remembering that if you want to get involved in trading IPOs, that for every high-profile IPO that doubles on its first day, there are many more that disappoint investors. In fact, the long-term performance of IPOs is underwhelming. About half produce negative returns in their first five years as public companies. Over the last 30 years, a portfolio of IPOs issued over the prior 12 months weighed by market value and rebalanced monthly, posted annualized returns of around 7% per year. The Russell 3000 stock index that tracks both large company and small cap stocks returned around 9% a year over the same period. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't invest in IPOs, as obviously there's a lot of opportunity there. It just means that you should do your research before diving in. The world of finance is always moving forward and finding new efficiencies, and that's good for the investing public. While most of the new trading apps are not really the best brokerage firms out there, the all-in cost of trading is a lot lower today than it was in the past. There are definitely issues with these trading apps going down in volatile markets, but when I started out trading, you quickly realized that market makers just wouldn't answer their phones in volatile markets. The same problem, just a different technology. Retail investors are more informed today than at any point in history. Financial education is available for free on YouTube and elsewhere online, something investors couldn't have dreamt of 30 years ago. The IPO process is not the only way that companies can issue securities to the public. Check out my content on SPACs and on primary direct listings to see other ways that companies can go public and to learn the pros and cons of those approaches. Like, subscribe, have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.